a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I don't know if you tuned in today so that you could, uh, you know, get some uh, reassurance or confirmation that, yep, things are as weird and tough as you thought they were. By the way, you don't need my help (laughs) to to come to that conclusion. All you got to do is just open your eyes and look around. But I am going to share with you some information about, well, about the world going on around us, but mostly about solutions, okay? Look, anybody can loudly point out, here's what's wrong, and this is why I'm angry, this is what grinds my gears, and I've been very good at this for a long time, made quite a living on it, actually, but at some point, we've got to be focused on, okay, what's within our power to address, and see, this is where you. This is where a lot of people kind of okay, they glaze over. Well, I'd I'd rather point out the problems and let somebody else worry about how to solve them. No, if there are going to be solutions, you and I are going to be the ones to do it. There's really no other way. Now, on the big macro level, okay, well, fine. Let's let's solve the problem. How do we deal with the trade imbalance with China? <laughs> okay, that's maybe that's not our problem, at least directly. Now, there's a lot of stuff that's closer to home. In fact, it's right there in our own backyards or within the walls of our home or within our community that we can help with. But one of the things we absolutely need is people who are willing to ask why things are the way they are. In other words, just don't buy into the the common narrative that, well, you know, things have just been this way forever. And I suppose this is how it was supposed to go. Like we're just leaves being carried along by the current, you know, down the gutter. I've got a great article here from Gary Gallus. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. Needed more people to keep asking why. I, I love how he puts this. Gary says, with grandchildren who are now two, four, and six years old, I have had occasion to weather many a why question, but blessedly less frequently than my kids have. And judging from the sub- substantial online discussion of kids' why stage, he says, I'm far from alone. But Gary says, in perusing some of that discussion, one comment by psychiatrist Napatia Gettings shifted my thoughts away from how to survive the why stage. She said, they're trying to make sense of the world, and that's a good sign. Gary Gallus says, it made me remember a phrase I've read with some variation many times in Thomas Sowell's writing, at least as far back as his 1980 Knowledge and Decisions through his 2009 Intellectuals in Society. He repeatedly pointed out that many important aspects, that important aspects rather, of many views, proposals, and policies ran aground on a seldom, on a question seldom asked, much less answered. That does sound like classic Thomas Sowell, doesn't it? So Gary says the trigger for the why stage in kids seems to be the explosion of language capability around age three. Once kids have the words to begin expressing new things, their attempts to understand the world snowball. And he says, that made me think that we need more people to emulate small children when it comes to politics, because we need far more people to persist in asking why questions when justifications for political choices are not satisfying. That is, with apologies to Dr. Gettings, too many adults have given up trying to make sense of the political world, and that's a bad sign. 
He says issues that are rarely asked about, much less answered, are so liberally sprinkled throughout politics that they are part of many pathways to policy failure, to cite his most recent book. So, he says, we could use far more persistent why-askers like my grandkids in the face of the many iterations of shut up and obey we've been hearing from our supposed public servants and those eager to curry favor with them. Gary Gallus says, consider some of the why questions for policies that frequently occur to me without good answers given by activists, politicians, and rent seekers. Okay, so for instance, why do politicians laud American voters before elections, but then override so many of their choices as soon as the election is over? Oh, Gary, my hand goes up on that one. I I think I have at least a partial answer. And that is because it's the nature of politicians to say whatever they need to say in order to get elected. And then once elected, to do whatever they need to do in order to stay in power. Two very different things, both highly amoral. Anyway, that's, that's my crack at it. Here's another question he has. Why should voters expect moving decisions to government will produce better results when those in government have less information about you and care less about you than you do? Ooh, that's a good one. Here's another. Why is government help considered moral or ethical when the resources are taken from others who did not agree to pay for it? This makes me think of uh, my, my friend Ryan Schutte's Uh, article that I shared with you the other day. Why is overcoming ineffective or wrong-headed regulations cited so often as a cause of crises, yet new regulations are constantly proposed as solutions to crises? He's got some great questions here. Why does government claim to create jobs with stimulus plans when all that really happens is that jobs are simply moved from where the resources were taken to where they are then spent? Why, when raising tax revenue, does the government ignore the distortions caused by doing so, which economists call welfare costs, when they are necessary implications of taxation? Why, when government spends money, do it count to multiplier? does it count multiplier effect as benefits, but when it raises the money, it ignores the negative multiplier effects on the cost side? Why are price ceilings considered solutions to not enough of some goods being available when they make suppliers provide even less of the goods in question? Why do so few people notice that price ceilings and price floors both reduce the quantity of goods exchanged, undermining the political promises of providing more used to justify them? Why is greed used to describe firms' refusal to provide what some desire but not those who want firms to be forced to provide what they would not do voluntarily. Why are firms supposedly too greedy to do what many activists want, but not greedy enough to hire underpaid women when that would supposedly be a huge profit opportunity? Yeah, that's the wage gap getting shot down right there. Why do people pushing single payer in healthcare not recognize that it's just a different name for government monopoly? Why does government insist that monopoly in markets is bad, but government monopoly is good? One final question. Why do politicians call their spending investment when it's taken involuntarily from one group to benefit other groups that politicians choose, which is far different from when I invest? Now, Gary Gallus says, such questions come to me with depressing frequency. He says, if you pay attention to public policy, you probably come up with your own list of not asked, much less answered questions that stick with you, because few things are as scarce as answers that are consistent with both logic and governments advancing the general welfare. But the questions keep coming. Sometimes I've wondered if there's a question to rule them all. 
I've come up with one candidate for such an August inquiry. Why was Thomas Sowell able to say the first lesson of economics is scarcity? There is never enough of anything to fully satisfy all those who want it. And the first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. I love these questions that, that he's asking. And I'm including this, uh, this article from Gary M. Gallus in today's show notes. This is for uh, September 15th, 2023, which you can check out at thebrianhydeshow.com. I don't encourage people to steep themselves or immerse themselves in politics, but if you're going to be engaged, and I think as a citizen, you do have to have a certain level of engagement. These are the kind of questions that you're going to need to ask. And, and I like that he, he points out, you know, using Thomas Sowell as an example here. Well, the first lesson of economics is scarcity. Now, look, I'm not saying you need to drop everything you're doing and go earn an advanced degree in economics from some university. But I would strongly recommend that you start thinking like an economist. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to have to run out and invest in a, you know, corduroy jacket with suede patches on the elbows and, you know, a pipe that you can smoke, you know, as you uh, muse over, you know, various questions. Or whatever, you know, however you picture economists. Maybe some people picture them in lab coats. I don't know. Frederick Bastiat, The Law, is a great place to start. Bastiat's essay, That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen, another fantastic way to introduce your mind to thinking like an economist. Because it, it encourages you, when, when considering some kind of public policy, don't just consider the immediate effects of, well, here's what's going to happen if we enact this policy. Consider also the effects of what might happen that uh, would not be anticipated. Who else might be affected, either positively or negatively? And if you're serious, I mean, if you're like, okay, Brian, this makes sense. I, I do want to have a, a better understanding or at least a better grasp of basic economics. Okay, well then, my friend, it is time to get your hands on a copy of Economics in One Lesson by uh, Henry Hazlitt. Now, these are, these are books that are all in my own library, and um, I don't read them with the regularity that I once did, but I'm telling you, it is very life-changing, especially Hazlitt. Reading Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson will definitely open your eyes to thinking in terms of the bigger picture. And most importantly, it's, this is not about, you know, well, I'm just going to have all the answers right there on the tip of my tongue. No. Thinking like an economist means being able to ask the right questions to make sure that you're getting a good, well-rounded view and perspective of what's being proposed. I think you'll find this is helpful in a lot of areas of life. It's not so much about being the smartest contestant on the stage as being able to ask the right questions so that you can better formulate your understanding. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to my sponsors including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, ClimbingUpward.com, and QuiltAndSew.com. By the way, links provided in the show notes at TheBrianHeightShow.com. If you uh, feel like you want to communicate, want to reach out, give me some feedback, please do. I appreciate, uh, I, look, I appreciate the, the praise as well as the criticism because uh, there's always, I can always do a better job and sometimes I get caught up in routine and it's, you know, it's, it's hard for me to see the forest for the trees. So um, if, you can, if you can help me see things that I'm not seeing or you want to send articles my way that you feel like, hey, this is important. Maybe you should talk about this. 
You'll find uh, contact information again in my show notes. You can drop me a line, and uh, I will very happily put that uh, information to good use. I think one of the most disturbing realizations that I've had, especially over the last three years particularly, is how difficult it has become to, uh, to feel safe when I walk into a medical environment. And you're going to probably think, oh boy, here he goes. But I really, someone described it as a medical cartel. And I think that's about a, that's probably the best explanation or best definition or uh, description rather of, of the merger of healthcare and government that, that I can think of. And I'm just going to be, you know, blunt here. I think we saw unabashed, just naked medical tyranny during COVID. Now, Please keep in mind, I have friends, I have loved ones who work in the medical field, who are nurses or um, doctors, and they're good people. The reason I know they're good people is because they express frustration to me about some of the things that they're forced to labor under. But the the corporate merger, the the crony corporate, uh, uh, crony capitalist merger of big medical corporations and healthcare providers with government interests has not been good for us. Uh, to the point where I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. You know, it's like, you know, if I'm having a, a health issue, I think in many ways, I would rather die than submit to, well, I've got to, you know, walk through those hospital doors and then submit to all of their protocols. Because those protocols apparently will uh, will trump everything. I'm going to go off on a bit of a tear here for a moment. Uh, um, I think about what's happening with Ammon Bundy and with uh, St. Luke's Healthcare in, in Idaho. Ammon has just released a video that uh, I, I don't have it linked in today's show notes, but I would encourage you, go look him up on YouTube. I think the video is still up, but Ammon answers, I think it's seven different assertions that St. Luke's legal team, Holland and Hart, made about, this is where Ammon defamed St. Luke's healthcare. And Ammon goes by point by point and refutes each one of them. But he ends with uh, with a very chilling observation, and, and some would say, oh, he's just being dramatic, but I don't think he is. I, he says, how far will St. Luke's go in order to silence me? And, and again, this all starts with a medical kidnapping of a young infant from his mother um, because the parents did not want to, to follow this doctor's orders uh, when she said, you're going to do this or else I will get Child Protective Services involved. They wanted a second opinion. And the doctor pulled the trigger, got the police involved, got Child Protective Services involved, effected a medical kidnapping that was completely unnecessary. How do we know this is so? Well, number one, they were ready to give the child to a foster family that night. Now, if this kid was really in danger of, of dying, oh, well, he'd lost three quarters of a pound, Brian. This is this is a terrible thing. I mean, look, Ammon got a lot of uh, good information through uh, dis- the discovery process in his uh, trespassing trial, in which charges were brought by St. Luke's over, over trespassing at one of their properties. And the police body cam footage clearly shows these doctors in the employ of St. Luke's, you know, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we can transfer the child and, and, and describing how we have to do this surreptitiously. We'll send a decoy out this way and then we'll sneak him out this door. But they were ready to put him in a foster family that night. Now, you wouldn't do that with a child who's on death's door, would you? But by keeping that baby away from his mother... While he was in the hospital for five days, his condition worsened. Why? Well, because they were depriving him of his his primary source of nutrition. They put a nasogastric tube in him. They they 
they finally returned him to his parents after five days. By the way, no charges against the parents. No case from Child Protective Services. And it was all unnecessary. And when Ammon spoke up and brought attention to it, St. Luke said, hey, you can't do that. That makes us look bad. That makes us look like bad guys. Well, guess what? Upon closer scrutiny, you are bad guys, or at least you behaved like bad guys, as did members of the Meridian Police Department, as did Department of Health and Welfare. But that, that government-corporate partnership, well, we've got each other's backs. And so they're engaging in lawfare. They've, they've uh, put some kind of a $52 million judgment against Ammon and the baby's grandfather, Diego. And Ammon asks the question, because right now, the, the judge has frozen Av- Ammon's assets. He can only spend X amount. He can't transfer anything. You know, St. Luke's is like, we've got to collect the damages that were done to us. And they also said, and you can't talk about this. You cannot speak of this, or that's just further defamatory stuff. Well, look, I'm Ammon's friend, so I need to, I need to put that out there in full disclosure. I believe Ammon is telling the truth, and I think he backs it up in his videos. Now, notwithstanding the media and all of the, the legal system being arrayed against him, nothing resembling justice is being done in that court system. And there's a lot of distortion and deflection and, and outright obstruction of keeping people from seeing the truth. If you can find Ammon's videos, you should be able to find them on YouTube or go to peoplesrights.org. You'll find uh, links to the video there. You get a, a much broader understanding of what happened. You may still not agree with Ammon, but at least you'll, you won't be dependent upon highly paid liars and, and uh, spin doctors, so lawyers and, and media types, to tell you this is what it all means. But here's the key. Ammon asks the question, how far will St. Luke's go to silence me? And he says, I wonder if they are going to try to kill me, or at least get the police to kill me in order to shut me up. Now, there's a time I would have said, oh, now, let's not take it to that extreme. But having seen the way that, uh, that especially, you know, the sheriff there in Jim County clicked his heels. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. When, when he was told you have to do this at the behest of St. Luke's lawyers through a corrupted court system, I think it's very possible. Now, that's not something I want to see. And it's, it, it, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth to even speak the words that uh, this, is, this is what it's come to. But I think Ammon has a point. And, and honestly, seeing the lengths, the, the deception that St. Luke's and their attorneys, Eric Stidham, what a, what a piece of work this guy is. Very good at what he does, which is distorting, lying, and, and keeping the truth from people. And, and the people who critique uh, Ammon, well, why wasn't he in the courtroom? Why wasn't he participating, you know, in that? Look, would you go to a kangaroo court? It's a show trial. They packed the jury in the civil trial with people who either worked for or who had spouses that worked for St. Luke's or within the, or the health, Department of Health and Welfare. There's no way it was a jury of his peers. It was a, it was a jury of carefully hand-selected cronies, and there's nothing resembling justice was taking place in there. But now St. Luke's is determined. They're going to tighten the screws even more. They're going to go after, you can't talk about this. Okay, well, he may not be able to talk about it, but I damn sure can talk about it and will talk about it. And I'm not the only one. There are plenty of people out there who are willing to ask the questions. Why are they so determined to shut him up? 
By the way, there is another angle of connection here, and that is, um, in addition to St. Luke's, you know, being the harmed party that was, you know, wrongfully accused of taking this child away from its family, um, there's also the fact they're extremely well-connected to the political cronies who found themselves, well, surprised, perhaps even a bit threatened, by Ammon showing in the uh, gubernatorial race last year in Idaho. Ammon pulled almost 20% of the vote in that race. Now, for a guy who, you know, the media did everything to push out to the fringes as far as they could to try to scare everybody. Oh, he's a dangerous, dangerous individual. Well, apparently a lot of people are getting fed up with business as usual from, uh, you know, politicians and their, their crony buddies. So he poses a credible threat in the sense that he offers an alternative to those looking for better leadership. No wonder they want to silence him. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, thanks for sticking with me. That was quite a rant in the last uh, segment, but I don't know any other way to communicate just how high the stakes are. And uh, I look at the lengths to which uh, wicked people are willing to go to try to destroy someone who stood up for a family that had been wronged and was on the receiving end of injustice. And I think, yeah, 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 it's easy to dismiss it as well. You know, that Ammon, what a troublemaker he is. But I feel duty bound as his friend to point out. Every time Ammon has found himself sitting in a courtroom or sitting in jail or sitting in handcuffs, it was always because he was standing up on behalf of someone else. Just a little something to consider. All right. I wanted to talk about uh, the merger of healthcare and government for just a moment. Um, Lawrence Vance, writing, uh, this is a piece published on lewrockwell.com yesterday, uh, talked about a, a real clear policy article from James C. Capretta titled 10 Healthcare Ideas for No One in Particular. Now, um, Capretta apparently is a senior fellow and holds the Milton Friedman chair at the American Enterprise Institute. It's a right-leaning think tank where he studies healthcare, entitlement programs, and fiscal trends in advanced economies. He believes what the country needs is a strong presentation of the alternative to a government-managed system, which is one that relies on competition and choice to deliver better results. Now, Lawrence says, look... Um, Capretta correctly says the U.S. healthcare system is best seen as a public-private non-system built on a haphazard mix of subsidies and regulations adopted at various points in response to idiosyncratic political and historical factors. But he then offers 10 reforms that would not fix healthcare once and for all, but would deliver tangible improvements. And he divides the reforms into three groups, general reforms, Medicare, and coverage. Now, Lawrence Vance says, look, I'm not going to bore you with the reforms and all of their details. They're proposed reforms of a deeply flawed system. And all of their, and, and he says, after all, for no one in particular, um, not principles upon which healthcare for everyone in the United States should be based. In other words, trying to reform cancer is not the same thing as, as trying to uh, fight it or remove it or cure it. So Lawrence says, here are 10 healthcare ideas for everyone. And because of Lawrence Vance's reputation for um, understanding the principles of free market economics as well as personal liberty, I thought this was worth sharing. I think he has a very solid take here. His 10 healthcare ideas for everyone. Number one, the Constitution does not authorize the federal government to have anything to do with health care or health insurance. 
Number two, the Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health, Food and Drug Administration, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services should be eliminated. Yeah, he came right out and said it, and he's right. Number three, there is no right to affordable health care. Number four, health care is a service that can and should be provided on the free market just like any other service. Now, I'm going to pause for just a moment and ask, why is that, though? Isn't it going to be too expensive? If people are just trying to make money off it, why? That's terrible. In a word, competition is the reason why it should be provided on the free market just like any other service. The people who are best, for instance, at plastic surgery or, you know, something like that, yes, they're going to charge exorbitant amounts of money. Why? Because they're the very best, and competition dictates they can do so. But competition also prompts those who can provide reasonable care for a reasonable price to step their game up and take their share of the market. Competition actually brings prices down. Yeah, you're still going to have, you know, um, you know, the plastic surgeon to the stars and whatnot, but you're also going to have a lot of people out there as practitioners who are willing to meet the market where that sweet spot is. Quality of care meeting a price that, that people would find competitive. That can't happen when you've got a government, government monopoly and especially the interference. And, you know, have you noticed? I don't know if you've ever done this before, but have you ever had a medical procedure where, you know, it was going to be covered by insurance? I remember going to see a doctor here a few years ago and um, just needed a, an outpatient service done. And as they're, you know, drawing up, okay, this is what we're going to do. There's the consultation, and uh, this is what we're looking at. Now, what's your insurance? And I said, well, I'd like to pay cash. And they went, oh, and they flipped the page in a binder, and the price came down by about uh, at least a third, maybe a little bit more, just because I was willing to pay cash rather than put it on insurance. I'm just saying it distorts the market when you have government interference. Okay, number five, Medicare, Medicaid, and state children's health insurance program, or CHIP, are welfare programs that should be eliminated. Well, but what about the people who depend on them? Well, people who truly need help could still find help through private charities. Believe me, there are philanthropic organizations out there who exist for the purpose of helping people who are truly in need. But I'll tell you what the great difference is between them and programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and CHIP. Those philanthropic programs aren't designed to promote a lifetime of dependence, whereas the government programs are. So I agree with them. They should be eliminated. Number six, it is not the proper role of government to fund or subsidize health care services. Number seven, it is not the proper role of government to regulate or mandate health care services. Number eight, no American is entitled to health care provided at the expense of another American, regardless of how poor old, sick, or disabled he is. That's going to be a bitter pill for some people to swallow because they believe, well, it's our duty to to pay taxes to help people do this. Well, no, it's your duty, if you are so charitably inclined, yes, to step up and voluntarily donate money, donate time, donate whatever you need to do, but you do it voluntarily. You don't force people at the threat of going to jail to provide for another person. Because that's not charity. That's just forced slavery. 
Number nine, no American should be forced to pay for the health care of any other American. That's just putting a fine point on it right there. Number 10, healthcare freedom is always preferable to government intervention of any kind. So there you are. 10 healthcare ideas for everyone. And the point here that Lawrence Vance is making is that all conservative healthcare reform proposals fall short because they are reform proposals. He says the problem with healthcare in the United States is not that the system is broken and needs to be fixed by government reforms. The problem is that the government control of the system exists in the first place. Healthcare should be completely separated from the state, just like religion. In fact, I would add, just like education, it should be separated. But we have generations of people who've been raised to believe otherwise. But who who would take care of the poor? Who would take care of the children? Who would teach us? That's what decades and generations of dependency look and sound like. I don't know if you would uh, if you would find this uh, believable or not, but did you know that prior to 1913, when the income tax was instituted under the 16th Amendment, most Americans kept every penny that they earned. Now, this doesn't mean they paid no taxes at all. There were certain taxes, excise taxes, poll taxes, and the like. But there was no direct income tax. So I'm going to ask you, consider prior to 1913, How did any hospitals ever get built? Libraries, schools, bridges, parks. Those things did exist, right? And they existed without government or public financing, as we euphemistically call it. Children were educated, too. In fact, uh, really educated. As in, they, they learned how to become productive, thinking, virtuous human beings, as opposed to drones who pretty much think the same way and know their place and don't, uh, don't dare speak up without first raising their hand and asking permission. That came later, after government assumed control of the education systems. Oh, well, sure sounds like you're, you got a bone to pick or an axe to grind with government, Brian. Well, I do. And it's only because there is a proper and a legitimate role for government, but that's not it. It's not supposed to be helping us with health care. It's not supposed to be helping us with education. The job of government, per the Declaration of Independence and even the way the Constitution was written, is to guarantee and secure our natural rights. I like to say our God-given rights because, well, because I know it irritates people who cannot fathom the idea that there's a higher moral authority than the state itself. But that's what it's supposed to do. It's to keep us free, not to uh, step in and regulate every little thing in our lives. And I don't know if you've noticed this. Maybe I'm the only one who's seeing it. Maybe it's just me being paranoid. But the wickeder the people in the leadership uh, areas of our government become, the more determined they seem to be to demonstrate that we can control you, we can punish you, we can inflict our will upon you anytime we want. Joe Biden, or more appropriately, whoever is handling Joe Biden, I'm looking your direction as I say that. How's that working out for us anyway? Go gas your car up and get back to me, and we'll talk about how that's working. Go go buy a grocery cart full of groceries, or at least start the loan paperwork, and then we can talk about it. Proper government is a blessing. Out-of-control government is not. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Three quick articles I'm going to touch on in this final segment. The first one I'm just going to touch on briefly, and a hat tip to my friend Ruben for sending this my way. Ruben, I want to apologize for the bad language that I used in response, but uh, really, I was not happy when I saw the headline. G20 attendees openly announced plans to implement digital currencies and IDs worldwide. You understand what that means, right? The moment of decision for each one of us is approaching. This is uh, from ZeroHedge.com. It's actually an article first written by Brian Young uh, via the Epic Times. But a group of uh, the group of 20 leaders have agreed to a plan to eventually impose digital currencies and digital IDs on their respective populations, despite fears that governments will use them to monitor their people's spending and crush dissent. Now, look, those of you who are believers in the Bible, you remember a certain warning that I believe, uh, I think it was John the Revelator gave about the mark of the beast. I'm not saying that this is the mark of the beast, but I am going to say if it's not, wow, it's, it's missing a great opportunity. But digital IDs are the gateway to electronic fascism. And I mean the real kind of fascism, where if, if a credit score, a social credit score can be applied to you, you can be denied access to your money. Well, it's not really even your money if it's digital, right? You access it at the whim and at the mercy of those who control the system. And that means that uh, how you spend your money can be very carefully controlled. Oh, you want to buy a steak? Sorry, your money's no good for that. You want to gas up your car? Sorry, your social credit score is insufficient for such a purchase. How about you want to uh, charge your electric vehicle, right? You're a good person. You got an, you got an EV. Nope, I'm sorry, Mr. Hyde. You have engaged in wrong think uh, one too many times this week. Your uh, charging permissions have been restricted. Isn't that something? All I'm saying is uh, the the possibility for abuse is rife. And that means that uh, people like you and me, people who take their freedom seriously, we're going to have a choice to face. This is not going to be an easy choice. I'm not going to pretend like, well, I'll just put my foot down right now and say, hell no, I'm not going to have that. It's going to be a choice that is going to require us to choose between living comfortably within society Plenty of heat in the winter, air conditioning in the summer, food to eat, and, you know, access to medical care and so forth. Or living on the fringes of society, basically, um, you're, you're going to be a virtual homeless person. Maybe literally a homeless person by not participating in this system. So that's a pretty heavy decision to make. I suspect most people are going to flunk that decision. Frankly, I want to believe that I will have the fortitude... To, to do the right thing no matter how tough it gets. I don't know, though. I don't think I've ever been under that kind of extreme duress, but that's exactly where I see this headed. We're going to see who's serious about maintaining their autonomy versus those who are just like, I'm sorry, I just I have no choice. I've got to knuckle under and take the mark. Kind of a scary thought. I hope you'll check out the article that's in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. The article of the day goes very well with this, this other article I'm about to share with you, and that is, um, it is time to speak the truth. 
And the article of the day is actually from Karen Hunt. This is from OffGuardian.org. And I love what she points out here. Fighting evil doesn't require drawing blood. It doesn't require drawing a sword and let's get out there and fight them in the streets. But it does require speaking the truth or walking through fire, if you will, in order to speak the truth. Okay, and again, this is not an easy sell for people who are comfortable right now. Well, I got my pension to think about. I've got my standing in society to think about. If you speak the truth, again, I'm going to reference Ammon Bundy as, as an example. You will be punished. You will be treated as a heretic. And the heretics and apostates in society, sadly, they're the people that we should be listening to in the first place. But you can see the systems that want to rule us make it a point to punish those who would encourage people to think and act independently. So I, I would love for you to read Karen Hunt's article. It's really, it's really good. But she makes the case and, and I think makes it very strongly. This, this is an urgent call to speak the truth. She says, I'm not sure how much longer my voice will be available online. The battle's intensifying, but it's a subtle one that can't be clearly defined. People give all kinds of advice. A friend told me today it's about the words you use. You have to be careful not to use certain words so the algorithms don't get you. I see this happen all the time with posts that people make on social media. But Karen says, isn't that that exactly what we're fighting for? To be able to use the words we want when we want? If we all have to start tiptoeing around the algorithms... That's not free speech. In fact, that's worse than the heavy, boot of communi- the heavy boot of communism because it's so deceptive. Because it requires us to imprison ourselves and think we're smart for doing so. Ha! I'm tricking the system. But the government's not the one censoring us. It's, it, we're censoring ourselves. Speaking freely inside prisons of our own making to other prisoners who think the same. It's a brilliant article. Please take the time to read it. Now, This is the one that hopefully makes you just a little bit uncomfortable. This is a call from uh, J.B. Shirk, writing for AmericanThinker.com, a call to quills for writers everywhere. And it's, it's really interesting. Just this week, I've run into a couple of people who have really said, you know, I feel like I should be writing more. And I agree. And I want you to know, I'm a guy who hated writing. When I was in school and even my first years of college, I just hated writing. It was so much work. My brain worked faster than my fingers would write or could type. I guess I still used typewriters when I first started, so that may be one reason I didn't really care for it. But writing is such a necessary skill. And J.B. Shirk actually makes the cause makes makes the case rather for why this is, is so. He says, from time to time, someone asks me for advice on writing. And he says, I want to encourage people to write because this is a crucial time in history. As the scourge of censorship takes hold across the West, we don't know whether the platforms of communication available to us today will be around tomorrow. The days of handwritten samizdat may well return, and for this reason it's important that freethinkers spend time recording their thoughts so that others may learn and do the same. He says writing is good exercise for the brain, and through trial and error, even non-writers will become writers quickly. In fact, he says most of what I know comes from reading the words of others, which is a testament to the power of writing. The most important thing to know about writing is this. Always write without fear. Now, the word essay actually means an attempt. Our current understanding of the word as a form of written composition comes from the great 16th century writer Michael de Montaigne, who recorded his thoughts in a collection of attempts or essays during the French Renaissance. Writing is not about producing perfection. It's about pursuing perfection. 
Michelangelo said every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. So J.B. Shirk says, when I sit down to write, I look for that statue and start to chip away at the rock as best I can. I begin with an idea of what perfection might look like. And invariably, I never achieve a perfect result, but sometimes I'm a little closer to the ideal in my mind. Everything I write is an attempt to reach this ideal. Now, he also points out that writing should be fun. William Faulkner said, I only write when inspiration strikes. Fortunately, it strikes at nine every morning. Although I found the early morning hours a particularly rich time to write, I hardly ever write until my head is nearly bursting with ideas. I let thoughts collect and percolate until my brain feels like it might explode, and only then do I sit down and attempt to sculpt those ideas into something worth saying. Some of the best advice on writing comes from Kurt Vonnegut's uh, short essay, How to Write with Style. His rules for great writing include, number one, find a subject you care about. Number two, do not ramble. Number three, keep it simple. Number four, have guts to cut. Number five, sound like yourself. Number six, say what you mean. And number seven, pity the readers. So if we take number four to heart, then I think we could effectively edit Vonnegut's rules into just three. Write with passion, speak with your own voice, and keep it concise. The more passionate you are about a subject, the more naturally your own voice will flow. So if you really want to catch a reader's attention, first think about the subjects that most fire you up. Let that energy stir inside you until you feel as though you might pop. Then get those words down on paper. In Gus Van Sant's movie, Finding Forrester, inspired by the life of reclusive, uh, reclusive writer J.D. Salinger, Sean, Connerably, Sean Connor memorably instructs his young protege, no thinking, that comes later. You must write your first draft with your heart. You rewrite with your head. The first key to writing is to write, not to think. Now, there's a lot more to this article, but I know there are people out there right now who are considering writing. Whether it's just keeping a journal or, you know, maybe you have a serious purpose to write. J.B. Shirk rather says, I encourage you to become a writer if you are not already. He says, fight back against that iron curtain of censorship now descending all around us. By making sure that your thoughts can never be erased, write with passion and inspire others. It's impossible for the government to eradicate all dissent so long as all of us insist on having something to say. So he says, consider this a call to quills for writers everywhere. I'm going to add one other benefit that you may not have considered. Future generations, your kids, their kids, and even their kids' kids will thank you for putting these things down on paper. This is The Brian Hyde Show.